Welcome to the Weekly Standard Podcast here for a special State of the Union Reaction Podcast. This is our good friend Steve Hayes with the Weekly Standard. Steve, I'm going to give you a one word to describe tonight's speech, and I want to hear yours. And for me, it's inspiring. I'll tell you what I mean by that in a minute. What is your one word for the State of the Union address? Familiar. <laughs> I think the president basically has given this speech before. We've heard it many, many times, and uh, I think in, in many ways it encapsulates what we've come to expect from President Obama as, as president. What do you mean by that? Well, I mean, it was sneering in tone. It was uh, paternalistic in its prescription. I think it was condescending. I think it was hypocritical um, in a number of different respects. I mean, if you think about just the basic assumption behind the speech, the basic argument the president of the United States made was that the 67 percent of Americans who think the country's on the wrong track are too ignorant to recognize that it's not and that this is the right track, whether they recognize it or not. I mean, that's basically his argument. And the, the, the paternalism, the condescension uh, underlying that assumption, I think, is is pretty extraordinary. Yeah, there seemed to be kind of a, uh, what's wrong with you people? Don't you understand how I'm right about everything? Get with the program kind of attitude. It's, it's exactly. Very, exactly. Very odd and off-putting. But what about the specifics that he rolled through? For example, he says the economy's in great shape. Don't believe what you're hearing out there. Uh, unemployment's way down, and our economy is terrific. Look, I mean, nobody other than Paul Krugman actually believes that. Um, <laughs> There's a reason that 67% of the country thinks uh, thinks that, that we're on the wrong track, and it's because they don't feel like that. I mean, you look at the unemployment numbers, you can look at the, the actual unemployment rate, or you can look at the labor force participation rate. You can look at GDP growth in contrast to the president's uh, consecutive months of, of overall uh, job growth. I mean, GDP growth is is mired in the twos. There's very little prospect that it's going to increase significantly at any time in the future. This is the slowest uh, peacetime recovery uh, that we've had in decades. And the president just wants to try to convince the American people that, that what they're feeling, that what they see when they look at their bank accounts isn't so. I, I just find that tremendously condescending. I was uh, struck when the president said that uh, one of the he mentioned one of the few regrets he had was his inability to change the tone in Washington. And before we get to the tone part, I, I mean, I, you know, whether you love President Obama or don't, you have to admit that some things haven't quite worked out at the the way they were predicted, you know, Obamacare. In fact, you didn't get to keep your doctor. Or premiums have gone way up. Deductibles have gone way up. Uh, the stimulus didn't exactly stimulate the way people thought. The Russian reset, the America's place in the world. I mean, in fact, it's hard to think of a big ticket item that went the way the president said. And yet he says he had, quote, few regrets. I Does it was that just puffery or or is that really how the president views his presidency. No, I think I think it is how he views his presidency. And that was basically the, the theme of the speech. I'm a man of few regrets. And even when he offered his regret, which obviously appealed to some people, it wasn't an actual regret. I mean, he said he regrets that the country hasn't come together the way that he wanted to. And he, he had this sort of fake modesty by saying, well, you know, somebody with the skills of Abraham Lincoln might have been able to do it to suggest that the task was so Herculean that there was no way he was going to be able to do it. And I think what he did there is he 
didn't see himself, he didn't see that he has not only a role, I would argue, but the predominant role in causing our divisions. I mean, the country was divided before, but it wasn't divided the way that it is today. And President Obama regrets that he hasn't brought us together. He ought to regret that he's driven us much, much further apart. And he's the reason someone like a Donald Trump uh, is doing as well as he is these days. And, and the fact that the president can't even stop and see that at a moment that he sort of portrayed as this moment of self-reflection, I think, uh, doesn't speak well of the president and his uh, humility. I have to confess that <clears throat> as a guy who works in talk radio and has been known to use a tad of invective on occasion myself, having President Obama lecture me on political civility is like having Hannibal Lecter criticize my choice of entree. I don't know any <laughs> any politician in America with significant power who has been more insulting of the people who disagree with him than President Obama. And, and you've mentioned several times that he repeatedly compares Republicans to terrorists and terror regimes. I mean, that George W. Bush, Bill Clinton, they just didn't do stuff like that. It's a staple of his rhetoric. And what's interesting is, is uh, often when the administration, when either the White House press secretary or the president himself is asked about it, you know, you assume that he does this sort of in a fit of peak. And then he maybe regrets it a little bit later. But but there have been several times when somebody in the administration has used this kind of rhetoric and the president or one of his spokesmen is asked about it later and they stand by it. So to have this president lecture us on civility, I think, is the height of hypocrisy. And a couple of the examples uh, that, that we've talked about before, I mean, his communications director, the top communications official in Barack Obama's White House in 2013, said that Republicans negotiating with Republicans is like negotiating with people who, quote, have a bomb strapped to their chest, comparing them to suicide bombers. When the president was talking about the Iran deal and people who, on principle, opposed the Iran deal, he compared them to the Iranian hardliners, to the mullahs, uh, who, who he says opposed the deal. Well, that's comparing Republicans to the leading state sponsors of terror, people who are responsible for the deaths of American troops. More recently, when Republicans, many Republicans said, hey, look, we ought to have a pause on admitting refugees from al-Qaeda-infested countries until we actually know who they are, where they're coming from, and what their backgrounds are. The president said that Republicans were doing the terrorists' work for them. And this guy is going to stand up and lecture us about civility? I find it deeply offensive. And, and look, there's no doubt that people will find that part of his speech appealing. Everybody loves the idea of civility. The problem is when you've got someone as hypocritical as the president and it ought to erode the power of that message. Well, you know, he says it's time for you to abandon your cynicism. And if there's anybody who knows cynicism, it's Barack Obama, Steve. My, one of my favorite moments was when he said that we need to encourage more people to get involved in the political process. Well, unless, of course, they're Tea Partiers trying to start a 4501c3, in which case we want to you know, prosecute right. them and sick the you know the feds on them we want to encourage more exactly. people to get involved That's a good well, point. unless you're a large dollar donor to his opponent in which case he will call you out by name this is the first time I ever, I, I ever saw that was when Romney was running and that guy out in Utah was you know the president the White House actually had a list of high-end donors that they criticized by name 
for uh, donating money to his opponent. How dare you, you, you citizens? But I, I start off by saying that the word that I took away for the, or for the speech for me tonight, Steve, was inspiring. And here's what I mean by it. I am inspired more than ever to do everything I can to pick a Republican who can win in 2016 so I do not have to sit through seven more of these. I I am more motivated than ever. And I think that I, I really, I, I mean this, I urge Republican primary voters to embrace the suckitude of tonight, that awful sinking feeling in the pit of your stomach of being hectored and lectured by people who declare themselves superior to you despite the repeated failing of their policies. Because I don't want to go through that again. And we, I think we have a great field of Republicans. If we can just focus on who can win that needs to be the focus. And I really do believe that for some Republicans watching this speech, it was a needed little boost, a needed little reminder that you may want to vote for somebody in a fit of pique or in a, you know, to, to make a statement. Not me, Steve. I'm voting for who can beat Hillary so that I don't have to do this again in 2017. Yeah, I think I think that's a very good argument, very persuasive argument. My only question is how many Republicans actually sat through the speech? And I would guess not terribly many. I think we've seen declining audiences for the president's State of the Union speeches in the past, I think largely because people know what they're going to, to, to get. And we did get so much of what we have already gotten from this president. But look, I mean, if, if, if there is a positive to come out of the speech and if it is that that conservatives sort of redouble their efforts to make sure that, you know, that, that a statist like this isn't in the position to lecture, um, look, then, then it's all to the good. I, I applaud you for seeing a silver lining where I only saw dark clouds. <laughs> One last question. Uh, any t- uh, thoughts on Nikki Haley and her performance? As you know, it is the job of the person who responds on behalf of the GOP to give their response, then be mocked about it for weeks before their political career comes to a dead end. So did Nikki Haley do her job, the governor of my home state of South Carolina? You know, I really think she did. And and maybe I, I think she did uh, exceptionally well, in part because those expectations are so low. It, it has had that effect on the people who have uh, preceded her in that role. But, but I think she did a pretty good job. I mean, I think it was a, a fairly straightforward, optimistic inclusive message about Republicans, about her family, about her state, um, about, you know, bringing, actually bringing people together rather than just rhetorically bringing together, uh, which provided a very nice contrast with the president. Um, I think that Donald Trump fans won't like what Nikki Haley said. I mean, she called for uh, Republicans and, and Americans more broadly to resist the the siren call of division and and talked about the loudest voices not always being the the best voices and uh, certainly there are trump fans who took that as a swipe at uh, their candidate and i think that was probably right maybe that's one of the reasons i thought it was effective steve hayes thanks so much for your analysis of the state of the union address let's do this with a different president in the future i'm looking forward to it i promise i will join you You've been listening to the Weekly Standard Podcast. Please be sure to check weeklystandard.com regularly for podcast updates. I'm your host, Michael Graham.